So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory. To bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hi, everyone. Today, I am super excited to be interviewing my co-host, Justin. And yeah, rather than talk about Justin, even though he's right in front of me, uh, (laughs) Justin, why don't you give us a fuller introduction about you and and your background? Thanks. I always have a tough time introducing myself because it's sort of situating yourself in relationship to what you're going to say. I guess I would say like I'm a visiting assistant professor at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies here at the University of Notre Dame. My background is international relations, and my research looks at indigenous storytelling and indigenous filmmaking as political visibility, as political sovereignty. Really, I I hone in on the concepts of indigenous sovereignty, indigenous security. You know, the way that I come at this is my lived experiences as a, a racialized body in the United States. My parents are from the Philippines, so I'm Filipino, I have dual citizenship. We come from an indigenous region of the Philippines, though I wasn't raised in that culture. And we found ourselves in the Midwest here in the United States. And before I knew it, you know, I made this my home. I had gotten my degrees here in the United States. And I come to realize that in the way that my family is displaced as a racialized colonial body, and by me making my home here in the United States, I'm replicating and carrying out those same colonial forces of displacement. So even though I find myself within Native Studies, my project is really a very personal one, which is how can I be both a product of colonialism while at the same time producing colonialism? And I think that there's been this process that I've been going through of sort of stepping into the unknown, stepping into being confounded, stepping into seeing complicity all around. And that's actually at the heart, I'd say, now that I think of it, of what I try to achieve in the classroom for students, trying to have them step away from our class a little bit more comfortable with being uncertain. So I'm writing a book about resurgent visual sovereignty, which is using visual narrative as a means of expressing cultural, state, ethnic sovereignty. And that's coming out with University of Nebraska Press here sometime in the next year. I'm writing a few things about creative sovereignty. Part of my praxis is also that I make films. That was just sort of a a hobby that I took up. And then I found that it was a lot more useful to the communities that I was working in than some of my scholarship. And then as my scholarship started developing, I started trying to pair them together. So now they're pretty much one in the same. So I'm happy to say just 
about a month ago now, this script that I had been working on that arose out of this program that I had at UC San Diego called the Native Film and Storytelling Institute. It was about a three-month, a one-week intensive, and then a three-month accompaniment period with about 20 Native and BIPOC students from around the United States, and we helped develop screenplays. And one of those screenplays got taken up. I helped smooth out some of the edges, and it was recently awarded the Audience Choice Award at the Toronto International Film Festival's Big Pitch. We've teamed up recently with the Canadian Indigenous Screen Office. And I think the exciting part there is that I'm directing what we're calling the Creative Sovereignty Lab, which is this hybrid academic and practice space where we're bringing in the actors, we're bringing in community apprentice, we're bringing in native, more professional apprentice, and we're studying not only how to make a film and be professional, but also what are some of the insights we can develop from taking indigenous approaches to process and filmmaking. So we're going to be studying critical literature around feminist approaches to representation, critical indigenous scholarship around representation, and uh, hopefully that's all going to be wrapped up in my in my research in my book. But that's a that's a long introduction, which kind of gets you a little bit of um, a situating of of how I approach the classroom. I'd say. Yeah, for any listeners who are more interested in Justin's work, I highly recommend getting your hands on some of his film work. It's great. To kind of zero in on something that you said about your approach to pedagogy, you talked about making students be more comfortable with feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that looks like in your classroom concretely. How do you make students feel comfort in discomfort? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I could draw on something that that just happened recently. And this this sort of technique that I really like to use in my classes. So I, I have students create a personal letter to me. And you know, when whenever students get into a classroom, they don't know the other people. Automatically, people sort of replicate that very divisive discourse of I'm entrenched in one view and you're on the other side. And I think it's really easy for students to see a lot of difference amongst their classmates immediately. So what I do is I I ask them to write a personal letter to me. I kind of start from the scale of like, what type of person do you want to be? And who's informed how you want to be? Who's inspired you? And then I ask to answer the question, what are your previous experiences with the themes of the class? And then how can you envision this class reinforming that type of person that you're moving towards that you want to be? Right. And so it becomes very personal. They often talk about the type of person they want to be to the people they love. They often talk about family members and other people that inspire them. And it's really just this personal letter. Around the same time, I also introduce myself very personally as well. And I'm very honest with them. I talk about how some of my family has sort of accepted some of these hierarchical ways and sort of turned towards horizontal violence. In my community, there's a lot of anti blackness just like in many communities. And so immediately I model this reflexive positionality. That is to say, a deep interrogation of the positions of power and privilege that you hold that you may or may not be aware of. Also identifying spaces that you might feel marginalized, but conversely, examining spaces where you might feel that you might have a platform in which to act. 
So I model that immediately that it's okay to bring in your own person, the feelings and dispositions that you may have that were given to you by your grandmother, by your great-grandmother. It's okay to bring that with you. And so immediately, not only did they say, well, you know, I've had experience with indigenous political thought by X, Y, Z, but before that, they even talk about where they have come to know the world and how they want to operate in it. So usually I get beautiful, beautiful letters, just absolutely beautiful. And to me, it's also really energizing because sometimes you may have students within the first few weeks, you see that they're very entrenched in one divisive political view or they may be sort of reiterating some of those hyperboles and sayings that you would see on, on Twitter and social media. And then you read their personal letter and it's so beautiful. And the type of person that they want to be is so beautiful. And the language they use is so kind and loving and warm that it really shifts any misconceptions you might have immediately of any of these students. So a few weeks into the class, I, I asked them, I say, you've written this to me, but I think it's so beautiful. Do I have your permission to anonymize portions of it? And at some point in the semester, read it back to us. And I say, if you, if you don't approve of that, please let me know. Like I said, I'll anonymize it in any of the circumstances that they share with me. And generally, everyone's okay with it. It's rounding that time on campus where people are very feeling very fatigued. It's that political time of the year where we see a lot of division and rancor in the conversations um, outside of our class and just in our world. So I decided to do the second part of this activity, which is to sit everyone down. And we've been outside a lot. So I, I went to a quiet place where you could hear the wind, you can hear the, the water nearby and the birds. And I just asked them just to sit quietly and reflect and think about how you first came into the classroom, how you thought of your peers, and then just listen. And we'll listen to our class narrative. And out of all my students, you know, I went in and I maybe chose two, three sentences here, two, three sentences there. Then I mixed them up. So it was very difficult to figure out who's saying what. And then I kind of order it, you know, maybe moving from kind of like individual experiences to personal experiences, then to where we want to move in the future. And I read this letter back to them. Sometimes if I'm in the classroom, I'll turn off the lights. I'll just let them just sit and listen. And something happens whenever I do that. And it's really beautiful because the phenomena that usually occurs is you listen and you say, oh, yeah, I wrote that. That's absolutely me. And then maybe like 30 seconds later, something else is said and you're like, wait a second. No, maybe I wrote that. And then it just keeps happening. In 10, 15 minutes of me just sort of going through this, this class narrative, inevitably, people feel like they've written most all of it. They can almost not tell where their words end and someone else's words start. And what's so beautiful about it is that the students start seeing themselves in a different way. They start recognizing, oh, you know, maybe that person who's been very sort of staunch in their belief in one perspective, their voice is also in this sort of collective narrative that sounds very much like mine, and that we might have more in common than what I initially thought. I let them sit on that. And then I ask, how has this changed the way that you think of your classmates? Can you think of the way that you first stepped into this space versus the way that you're leaving this space right now? And I think it really provides this really profound moment. Whenever I do this, I always draw upon Audre Lorde's work, specifically her, her famous essay, around the master's tools can never 
dismantle the master's house. One part there, she talks about the importance of interdependence. And she says that just merely tolerating other people and difference is what she says is the grossest reform. And then she points to that there's a creative function of difference that allows us to move into the darkness or the belly of the beast and come out with something new. And so I think that this exercise around this personal letter, it allows for positionality, it allows for reflexivity, but it also allows students to start seeing difference as something that they can work with. And then even step further, something that they should work with and that they need. You know, I do a lot of stuff with Native Studies and within Native Studies, there's a lot of conversation around relationships. We're always talking about relationships in the classroom and in in society. And there's this tendency to view relationships as sort of familial, but then also to romanticize it. And I think that gets in the way of our thinking about what a relational classroom could look like. Because, you know, when we think of relational, we think of like, oh yeah, these are my best friends. I love speaking to you, Ashley, all the time. This is not even work. That's part of relational. But when you think of familial relations, the family is not always rosy and cheery in terms of a unified unit, if you would even call it that. We have folks in our family that make it very difficult for me to talk about a lot of things of meaning. And under normal circumstances, I may not be friends with them. But because we're family, I know that I have to live with them and I have to love them. And so it forces me to love people that I may not actually want to be friends with, but we're in this together. We're one family. What I'm trying to say here is that by looking at sort of this interplay between discord and unity and feeling safe as a sort of interconnected entity versus sort of discord, I try to model a space where we can start seeing each other as good human beings that might have different dispositions or opinions, but all within this sort of collective common shared humanity this common narrative that brings us all together. So to get back to the question, I think that not only do I try to foreground positionality and reflexivity, but as Audrey Lloyd mentions, there's this importance to interdependence, interdependence of people's differences. And as Audrey Lloyd mentions, she says, quote, they allow us to descend into the chaos of knowledge and return with true visions of our future. So really what I'm working to do is I'm looking to try to re-anchor students in the belief that they're actually surrounded by good people, really good people that are similar to themselves. And it's actually the structures that need to be transformed. And transforming those structures absolutely requires moving into uncertainty and the unknown. But that exploration must be done in a relational interconnected manner, that those differences that we were once fearful of are actually strengths to build upon and to craft new envisioned futures. Yeah, a lot of what you what you say totally resonates with me. And we've had many, many discussions about the mm-hmm. necessity of foregrounding positionality in the classroom and and in political work and mm-hmm. in lots of places. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to this set of convictions around pedagogy. I know from our conversations that like feminist international relations, even though it's feminist, didn't always prepare 
you necessarily to thinking about your pedagogical priorities in this way that you've just really beautifully explained for us. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your journey toward coming to this position as a teacher, not only as a person. Yeah. Thanks. You know, I think one of the main questions in my life has always been around belonging and home. I grew up in Ohio, as I mentioned, a racialized body that didn't look like everyone else. And the dialogue often was very black and white, literally and also metaphorically. And if you didn't fall within that category of black and white, you know, you weren't really left with any space in these conversations. So from an early age, I was really curious about trying to understand belonging, difference, othering, in a sense, like peace and conflict resolution. I didn't really know it as such, but that was my my really big interest. Right after college, I, I ended up working in, in the development field, in global development and also in peace and conflict resolution. And I was making films, but also working for nonprofits. And for about seven years, it took me living abroad. I started out in South Asia and Southeast Asia. So India, Nepal, and then I was in the Philippines for some time, and then Cambodia, Burma, Myanmar, and Thailand. And then I started doing work in East Africa, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda. Also along the way, I was in Northern Ireland for a little bit and and doing work in some parts of Central America as well. And I felt that it was really immediately satisfying to be abroad somewhere, working with a sort of a grassroots community and feeling that you're needed. I felt that there was this sort of immediacy of sort of need that felt really good. But then it was a bit fleeting because I realized that, you know, when you're when you're working in some of these spaces, you're sort of encapsulated within a structure that's just making you spin your wheels. It's just sort of going around and around, maybe just putting band-aids on everything. And so a lot of the spaces that I ended up being in, I I realized that the background, the backdrop, was something much deeper and much more structural. There was colonialism pretty much as the structure of every single space that I worked in. And so I realized that my intervention needed to be somewhere else. It needed to be uh, not necessarily just in grassroots international work, but I realized that my intervention and my efforts needed to be somewhere around the spaces that thought is created in in the first place. And that's when I decided to go back to graduate school. And I'll, I'll tell you that you know, when I started a, a, my graduate program, I was actually late. I was absent the first week and a half, almost two weeks of the first semester, which is a really bad way to make an impression in your department. But the reason being was because I was um, finishing up this film on um, HIV AIDS survivors, teenage women who are HIV AIDS survivors in Uganda. And I was finishing up some interviews with, with these wonderful people. And so when I got back, you know, by week three, we had a, a 20-page paper that we had to, to complete. And most of my cohort were really pulling their hair out saying, oh my gosh, you know, it's only week three and we have these high expectations. But for me, you know, my experiences really grounded me. They sort of informed me that, hey, if my biggest challenge in life right now is to write a 20-page paper, then like happy days, right? This is, this is things are going well. So this is to say that I worked in spaces of extreme poverty and conflict. I was a coach for a street kids soccer league in New Delhi for about half a year. I worked with childhood trafficking in Thailand and Burma. 
I worked with youth that were facing violence in Northern Ireland, where we had to evacuate our home a few times. A student of mine was stabbed while we were working together. I've been held up at gunpoint multiple times, had bricks thrown at me, had firebombs thrown towards us and paint bombs. There was a lot going on, I'd say, in those seven years to the point that when I got to the space where thought was being developed, I knew why I was there. I knew why it wasn't challenging for me to write a 20-page paper because what I'm writing about and the the context and knowing the real world implications of what I'm writing about are out there and people are dealing with it. It made me sort of go through my graduate program with resolve. And today it absolutely impacts how I teach. I tell all of my students, I tell them that the topics and themes that we discuss over the 16 or 10 weeks or whatever it may be are much more important than the final grade that you'll get in this class. I tell them that the ideas that they start nourishing, the ideas that they start with a spark in our class should absolutely go into other classes, should go well beyond our 16 weeks, and they should be used to animate exactly what we were talking about before, which is what type of person do you want to be? So to me, if anything, it's sort of created this foundation where when there are storms, and we know that if you're taking up critical research and critical teaching, there are going to be storms. Whenever there are storms, I'm able to at least find footing knowing that there are a lot of people that would love to be in my position. There are a lot of people that have bestowed upon me the gift of knowing their stories. And so I feel a responsibility feel a responsibility not only to my research, but also to my students to show them that, you know, they might feel that the world is collapsing around them. And even if they get a bad grade, it might feel like the world is collapsing around them. But you know how sometimes like they say life is short. I also like to remind our students that life is also long. It's the longest thing that we're ever going to do. And that, you know, this is not a sprint, but it's a long-term sort of effort to transform the world. And what that means is that you have to look not only within yourself, but you have to look outside yourself. And so to me, all of my experiences, those seven, eight years working abroad and the film projects that I still do today, they help ground me. They help ground me in realizing what's important. They help ground me in realizing if I had an opportunity to be in that, you know, in that ivory tower, what would I be teaching? And so I think if anything, it gives me resolve. It sort of straightens up my spine to do more things that are a bit bold and non-conventional. But I feel there's a reason for those things. Thanks, Justin. I really liked and resonated with a lot of what you said about the importance of the world outside the classroom for the world inside the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the world that we're living in right now with the pandemic, among other things, um, like how that whole world outside the classroom has, I don't know, maybe changed what you're doing inside the classroom or Mm -hmm. maybe for good reasons, hasn't changed what you're doing inside the classroom. Like how has this new world that we're living in at the moment, how is that reflected in what you've been doing this semester? You know, I think if anything, the challenges that a lot of us are going through, it's presented an opening, I'd say, for us to really foreground some of the qualities and convictions that we already held. And so for me, typically at the beginning of every 
class, I, I generally ask, what do you as students expect from me? Where do you see I can make efforts to meet you where you are? And I'd say this year, out of all the years I've been teaching, students were more willing to share what they expected of me. And so these are things that I already have in my mind before they even say them. But looking at the list, I know this year, one of the things that stuck out was making sure that we have space for mental health, which is something that I think that we already do, but it was nice that they were able to vocalize it and I was able to agree with them and actually write it back onto our syllabus. You know, allowing for enough space for not only just like sort of logical things like readings and discussion, but also space for silence and space for reflection. And listening to them, it was something that I already wanted to foreground. And so I said, okay, that's an arrangement. And so I wrote it back on the syllabus and now I can hold them to it. So there is a practice that I usually used to do just for my morning classes. And I told the students that it was really almost more for me than it is for them. But now I'm doing it with all my classes because of this unique moment where, uh, you know, I have this whole stack of virtue cards, cards that explain different characteristics that we want to have in our lives. And I used to just read one card every morning. And that was that routine that I would do when I'd have to rush to class early in the morning. But now I have the students choose one and read one and they read the same one maybe multiple times over the semester. And I start out every class with a time for them to listen. So within Lakota cultural context, there's seven directions, north, south, east, west, upward, downward, and then also internally. I guess you would say maybe some of my feminist practice is also wrapped up within thinking about belonging and placemaking through the natural world. And in order to do that, you really have to listen. So we sit for maybe a minute or two at the beginning of every class, and we remind ourselves to try to listen to all seven directions. What are we hearing in front of us, behind us, to the left, right, above, and below, and then a moment to think about what we're listening to internally. And we just sit there in silence. And sometimes the students may read their virtue card in that silence. And other times I, I ask students to give one word, just one word, to kind of capture where they are emotionally, mentally, physically, and they go around and just say it. And that might also happen during our moment of silence at the beginning. And it's a great way to kind of pick up, like, oh, if someone feels anxious later down in the conversation, you say, well, help us unpack why some of us are feeling anxious, or maybe you want to put more words to that. So that would be the intentional beginnings and, and sort of book endings of class that I've really shifted up. But ultimately, I think what I strive to do is I strive to create a space where students can go deeper. And what I mean by deeper, I, I usually talk about the difference between information, knowledge, and wisdom. And the way I describe it is if you learn how to put something together, right? If you learn about like the parts of an engine, right? That's information. It's sort of given to you and you either you know it or you don't. But once you start putting that information together to actually be able to create the engine, then in fact, now you have knowledge. It's the ability to take information and use it in some way. Now with wisdom, it's something even different than, than both of those two. I say it's almost like once we have the car up and operational, how are you using the car? 
Are you using it in an equitable way? Are you using it in a way that's irresponsible? There's something about life that eludes just knowledge and information. There's something about life that eludes the best technocratic structures and information and knowledge systems that we have in place. And so when I think of wisdom and when I have students think of wisdom, I have them think about the applied use of knowledge in ways that are in line with their moral compass, but is also in a way that's reverent of what life is. There's something to life that we can't put our finger on. So it allows for awe. It allows for a feeling of tininess. It allows for a feeling of interconnectedness. And it allows them to move deeper into the subjects, to really reflect on who they are and how they are, and trying to go deeper, not just sort of philosophically, but also through their information and knowledge that they're gaining in order to try to become wiser people to live in wisdom and to accept the fact that as they continue to grow and gain more insight, they're going to be able to become more and more wise and also revisit some of that knowledge that they may have learned in class or in previous classes. Does that make sense, Ashley? Totally. You know, when you and I started talking about pedagogy, like right when we first met, We shared a sort of critique of the kind of normative expectations of the classroom. And then over a series of conversations, this the idea for this podcast was was born. Mm -hmm. And sort of now that we're wrapping up an entire first season, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about or reflect on either why you wanted to make this podcast or how it's felt to make this podcast or how the season has gone so far for you. In graduate school, I I started this nonprofit with others. It was a community bike shop, and now it's the the largest community bike shop in Delaware. And I remember when we used to have these programs, you know, we were trying to evaluate whether it was successful or not. And I would always ask, did you see joy? And that would be our marker as if we were successful. Okay, maybe 10 people show up, 20 people show up, 100 people show up, whatever. Was there joy? Was there laughter? was their community. And I would say, looking back at these weeks where we get to have these conversations, I would ask the same question. Was there joy? Was there community? Was there connection? And I would say overwhelmingly, absolutely. Absolutely. This last seven weeks, speaking to people in ways where we can connect as human beings, which is crazy to think that it's not that common in the academy to connect to other human beings, but just to be able to connect in ways that weren't pretentious or sort of posturing, just to kind of share best practices has been really nourishing to me, I'd say, much more than I thought. I know that many of the practices that I do and that you do and others, right, like we're not reinventing the wheel, that other people have done it. But to hear people like, you know, I really admire Cheryl Lightfoot. And to hear that she's also experienced so much uncertainty and that she's still moving through uncertainty in both her teaching and her professional life. And yet it's someone from the outside you admire so much and she's so prolific and respected. But to see that she's easy with herself, that she's easy with her students, that she's recognizing that she's only human and that her students are only human, that kind of like lifted a little bit of a burden off of me to be 100% perfect all the time, which really there's no such thing. And I loved how Tiffany King, who I love her research, she was so 
sort of like she just kept emphasizing that she's human and that she's relating to other students as human beings. So to me, that was also refreshing and uh, rejuvenating. And then let's also not just throw out the fact that you're really good friends with Will and Miguel and I'm friends with Tiffany and Cheryl and, and Kelsey's a good friend too. And I loved speaking to Kelsey because we weren't sure if that would fit into the podcast, but you know, she's talking about the process of making gloves from, what is it, from like bear hides or moose hides, right? And how that influences learning and thinking about political practice. And if you were to ask me, even just like four months ago, hey, you're going to have a podcast and you're going to be talking about bear gloves, like bear or moose hides and how that informs teaching. I would have said, you know, you're, you're crazy. What are you talking about? So to me, it's been this really beautiful synthesis of what our worlds are, which are, you know, they're funny, corny people who have lives, who, you know, may have not thought that they would see themselves at a great institution like University of British Columbia. And now they're Canadian research chair of that. It might be people who, like yourself and like myself, Ashley, who we've had these lives outside of the university and we never knew that we could actually bring it to the university. It's bringing in hunting and making gloves and, you know, all these other different stories into what the classroom experience should be, which is this human exploration of not just information or, or knowledge, but how do we actually gain sort of those characteristics and qualities that point us towards what we actually want to be as human beings, not in our 16 weeks or our 10 weeks, but you know, when sunset in our lives starts happening and we're thinking of moving on to the next plane, can we look back and say, I was the same person in the classroom that I was with my children, that I was with my best friends, that I was with my mother and my, my father. So to me, I told you that my journey really starts with trying to figure out belonging. And I think where I am and where I think some of our conversations these last seven weeks have got us to is this, this theme of coherence this theme of we can bring ourselves to the table. And where we may have thought it would be a weakness, we're finding, or at least I'm finding, what I thought would have been a weakness, my interdisciplinarity, my, my filmmaking, my desire to be useful to communities. It's actually a strength. You know, my last film collaboration called More Than a Word about the Washington football team, it played at nearly 300 universities in the United States. I haven't had an article that's had that much reach ever. It played at the Smithsonian, the National Museum of American Indian, multiple times in the last few months. You know, this new film, this Tanea, the one that won an award at the Toronto International Film Festival, it has the, the possibility of reaching thousands and thousands of people. And if I would have listened to some of my graduate advisors who said, don't bring your whole self to the table, don't bring your filmmaking and activism into the classroom, I would not have had the opportunity to step into this this sort of space of possibility of being able to actually transform the world to allow for more belonging and more coherence. So if anything, I've been very grateful for your efforts, Ashley, and also our producers, Hannah's, and for all the people that we've been able to, to speak to, to hopefully bring about and maybe carve out a little space where we can see each other as, as, as human beings like a caring, humane space in this sort of sea of sharp academic posturing. So yeah, I very much enjoyed our seven, eight, nine weeks doing this, Ashley. Thanks. I've also enjoyed it. It's been so lovely to 
both to hear again your story and hear new parts of your story and also to work on this project with you as we try to remake and refashion the world that we live in. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Theme music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.